Welcome to part 6 of Pop Lore, Stories of Singapore Pop. I'm Sai Akilish, a programmer at Esplanade, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. And in this second last episode of our series, we'll look at how local music tried to find its footing again in the 1980s and how this gave rise to the thriving indie band scene of the 1990s. We ended the previous episode with singer-songwriter Dick Lee, who released Life in the Lion City in 1983. This album was all about exploring his Singaporean identity. Unfortunately, it did not connect with local listeners. Life in the Lion City didn't do well at all because nobody cared about anything Singaporean. But thanks to the support of his record label head, Jimmy Wee, he was able to keep writing songs and releasing albums. As the decade drew to a close, Dick finally achieved a breakthrough with a record that went platinum and won him awards across Asia. In Singapore, it even sparked a public debate that resulted in songs with Singlish finally being allowed on the radio. This landmark album was The Mad Chinaman. Mad Chinaman came out in 1989 and the whole situation was different. The local climate in terms of Singaporeanness had changed. National songs had appeared. National songs changed everything. They started to introduce a sense of Singaporeanness to the public. And the national songs also linked music to our feeling of national pride. The first national song, 84, was Stand Up for Singapore. And then every year after that, a new song appeared, right? As the songs kept appearing, the public kept becoming more aware of being Singaporean. Without them, I think I couldn't have done Mad China Man. Are these national songs part of Singapore pop? As a teenager, music producer Leonard Suse certainly thought so, and he said as much when he went abroad for his studies in the late 1980s. When I was in Canada, when I was in music school, my classmates asked me, oh, what's Singapore music like? And I would say, oh, actually, we don't have much of a scene. So they'd say, play us some Singapore music. And then I would play them National Day songs. You know, and then they'd go like, what is this? No, no, come on, play us some real stuff. And to them, real meant the stuff that was happening at that time, grunge, you know. I went like, oh, I, I don't think anyone in Singapore knows about grunge yet. Actually, he was simply not around to see the indie scene here take shape, much like Dick, who left for Japan in 1990 when the success of the Mad Chinaman gave him a chance to establish himself in that market. But they were both very much aware of Chris Ho, the man who played a critical role in nurturing Singapore's alternative music. Chris was a musician, a DJ and a writer. And he was a lot more than that, says Dick, who helped to produce the album Regal Vigor for Chris's band, Zirkan Lounge, in the early 1980s. Chris is more like a visionary. I think he's a poet. We were both crazy about Joni Mitchell, who is also like a poet, you know. And he used to write that kind of lyrics like hers, I thought. And of course, his own personal tastes are a little bit more indie than mine. His tastes are more eclectic and it is reflected in his music. He knew he had his followers and he just did what he wanted. Back then, Leonard was a junior college student who was part of a band named Breaking Glass. They were into new wave music and Zirkan Lounge was one homegrown act that was definitely on their radar. At Court Hotel, I think, uh, there was a basement and then Zircon Lounge would be playing there and Chris Ho was actually a singer of that band. We always felt like, okay, you know, like, in order to be someone in Singapore, we had to be better than Zircon Lounge. 
And they were a really, really good band, like really forward thinking because the songs that they were writing were actually very mature. So we really looked up to them at that time. But the Singapore music industry of the 1980s was not built for renegade musicians. Here's Chris describing what it was like to make Regal Vigor in an interview for So Happy, 50 Years of Singapore Rock, a 2015 project by creative agency Furious. We were actually just doing it for the love and inspiration of punk, basically. We were hoping against all odds that we'll get somewhere. But by the look of things, it wasn't going to get anywhere anyway. I remembered when we went in, we had to bring in our own uh, snare drum because they had put in sacks of sand inside the snare drum to soften the sound of the snare drum because it was meant to have the Tracy Huang sound. Drums cannot be cracklingly loud, no. And I remember when, when we kept telling the engineer, turn up the sound of the guitar. He was like, it's already maximum, uh, like that. And we used to laugh about it. But that was really how it was. It was not easy. Because there really was no experience in that field to record music of our nature. Uh, we were the very first. Back then in the West, you had, yeah, the whole punk explosion, you had the Romeo Void, the REM and the U2. But in Singapore, all that didn't happen. People didn't know all that music. People were just still listening to, at most, Deep Purple, Grand Funk, you know, that sort of thing. They didn't know the whole punk new wave sensibility at all. Taiwan-born singer Tracy Huang was a huge star in Singapore back then. And her Chinese ballads and covers of English evergreens were massively popular. What else was on the radio during this time? Joe Ng, who would become one of the most prominent figures of the 1990s indie scene, paints a bleak picture. I was in primary school and like any kid, uh, when you were 11, 10, you were just listening to a lot of radio and uh, I was listening to all the pop hits, Abba, Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie and more Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, by the way, is a Canadian singer who was known for her easy listening adult contemporary music. These kinds of songs shared the local airwaves with lots of disco bops. One day I was listening to this Dan Hartman song. I cannot remember the title. It was a disco song. And I felt sick listening to it. To it. I felt repulsed by, by it because I was thinking like, oh, what the hell? I mean, is that what music is all about? I mean, is that is that it? It's just this and, uh, and then I got repulsed and I said, wow, it's, I, need, I need something more. The internet was still some years away. For those like Joe who were trying to plug into an alternative sound, finding their tribe took some doing. Access to music uh, back then, you really have to hunt the records down, the songs, albums that you want. The information I got uh, was mainly from magazines like uh, New Musical Express, Melody Maker, Smash Hits. That was when I was 12, 13, 14 years old and I got turned on to it by listening to a lot of BBC World Service. I got turned on to um, John Peel. From there, I got exposed to a lot of other stuff. And on Singapore Radio 1, back then, uh, they had a couple of Britpop programs and they had a couple of like DJs who 
were spinning stuff like Duran Duran, Depeche Mode. What they were playing uh, was against the grain of like Anne Murray, Anne Murray, Anne Murray, and more Anne Murray. <laughs> So that was my induction to another form of music. And of course, there's Chris Ho. I was listening to him every Sunday at 12 noon or 11 a.m. He has a show and he played pop hits, but once in a while, he would drop in something which is like, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. It was mind-blowing. Right? It's like, wow, suddenly the road is um, wide open. It's a yellow brick road. You can go anywhere you want to. And it boggles imagination because it different kind of instrumentation, different way of singing, different way of expressing themselves, lyrics which were really introspective, deeper meaning, more expressive, darker, sexier even, and more thought-provoking. Around this time, Chris was also writing about music for a local newspaper called The Sunday Monitor. Patrick Chung, another future indie icon, was in secondary school then, and he became a big fan of Chris's column. I followed The Sunday Monitor religiously every week because they were write about very interesting music. When The Sunday Monitor went out of business, two of its writers, brothers Michael and Philip Chia, decided to start their own publication along with their friend Stephen Tan. They named it Big O, an acronym for the lyric Before I Get Old, which is from the song My Generation by English rock band The Who. Big O debuted in 1985 and it became Singapore's first independent music magazine. Big O was a window basically to a lot of alternative music for me. It was also about indie films, about comics. It was the whole alternative culture Every month, I just waited for the fanzine to arrive. Uh, and then I would just like read from cover to cover, you know. And on the very first issue, right, there was a quote by Chris Ho. And in the quote, he says, Success to me is not how much you sell, but how much you inspire. And that quote, right, remained with me the rest of my life until... I think the day when I die or whatever, it will still be like, yeah, because it's, wow, it's a wonderful quote. I got inspired like, by Chris, by Big O. Soon, Joe started writing for Big O. Every month or something, right, we would hang out at Philip's house uh, in his uh, living room. And we had the Big O meet- meetings there, whereby Philip would uh, pass around records uh, to us to review what was very, very interesting uh, uh, and, and very good about the Big O meetings, it was actually a, a very nurturing kind of environment, uh, whereby, in particular, Philip Chia, he will try and understand, like, Joe is like that. Okay, I think this particular record, you find interesting. Or you will find some meaning there somewhere whereby you'll connect with the music. He's very per- perceptive like that, and he's also very nurturing, very kind. Going for big old uh, meetings uh, was, was something I really, really, really look forward to every month because I felt I wasn't alone. And back then, there's no internet, there's no uh, IRC, <laughs> or no messenger, no WhatsApp, whatever. For most parts, uh, I'm, I'm living like in my own world, not knowing there are actually people 
who like the same kind of music as me. A, a lot of them back back then were older than me, like a couple of years older. So I'll listen to to them and I'll be like in awe of their uh, of their opinions. The, the environment was very democratic. There's no. I tell you, young man, you don't know what rock and roll is. There's no such such thing. The environment wasn't like that. I love that that that, that space that Philip Chia and, and Michael and Stephen created. Besides the launch of Big O, 1985 also saw the release of a compilation album called Class Acts. The brainchild of Jimmy Wee, it featured several local bands who were popular club acts. Its success seemed to indicate that the tide for homegrown music makers was turning. Patrick was one music lover who was inspired by this album in his own way. Because there was uh, the Tokyo Square song, Within You Remain, and then Zircon Lounge as well, and Gingerbread, Roses. Those were big hits on the radio. So growing up, I was like, wow, those are Singapore bands, you know. We wanted to do a compilation as well with indie bands, you know, with very young, raw indie bands. That's why we call it Rough X, you know. And the X is AX, uh, you know. Yeah, it kind of spoofed the name. It's a very homemade thing. Basically, we duplicated the cassettes at home, photocopied the covers, and it looks very amateurish, very DIY. I think Rough X, we, we sold through big old mail order. So people have to write in, you know, send in their money, then we bill it out to them. In 1986, Big O released its own compilation album. Titled Nothing on the Radio, it featured music selected from submissions by local indie bands, including one called Corporate Toil. This was Joe's first band, and it originated from his musical explorations as a teenager. I tried to do something at home uh, with some toy microphone, and uh, got myself uh, some Casio tone together with my best friend from school, Wong Fook Yu. We're just fiddling around, you know, trying to do stuff like that, that were inspired by orchestral maneuvers in the dark, by Joy Division, and uh, stuff like that. Besides releasing music, Big O also started organizing gigs. In 1987, it staged the first alternative concert in Singapore. Called No Surrender, this event was held at the Anywhere Lounge. Anywhere was at a Tangling shopping centre. The house band that played there was uh, Tanya, very popular uh, band in the pub circuit. I think uh, Biko approached Anywhere to host a gig, an indie gig. So it was in the afternoon, because at night would be, you know, their regular hours. Uh. I saw so many bands for the first time. Zircon Lounge played, uh, and then uh, Opposition Party played also. There was Joe Love and the Hoopland Circus. There was the No Names, and then Corporate Toil, Joe's band, performed. Yeah, and then uh, he got me to play guitar for the cover of Joy Division. So I got to perform during that concert as well. The whole place was packed. There was a vibe about the place, the energy. It was a very memorable gig for me. It was a memorable afternoon for Joe as well, partly because the gig had not gone well for corporate toil. Being such close proximity, right, between audience and band, right, there was almost like a borderline confrontation. And the crowd was very, uh, a very rock-based crowd. Corporate toil, we are better off 
in a home studio environment doing what we do. And I think we do it pretty okay. But life, right? Oh, we suck. We were rubbish. And then we were booed. We were jeered. It was a terrible, terrible experience. I went back home and I wanted to like, oh, oh no one understands me. Um, what we had was interesting and good ideas, but um, we failed to present it uh, well in a live environment. Dealing with tough crowds was a rite of passage for bands in those days. And Joe had no intention of stopping. Yeah, I kept going. I was very much in touch with my internal anger. And I wanted to rage on and to find a kind of... It's, it's like a catharsis. It's a, a space to let go and a space to find myself to grow. With Big O leading the charge, the indie music scene was gathering momentum. In 1988, Patrick formed the band The Odd Fellows. And their first gig was the alternative pop concert held at the Botanic Gardens as part of the Singapore Arts Festival. But despite a somewhat higher profile, it was still an uphill battle to get their music distributed. When the Odd Fellows' first cassette came out in 88, right, I approached uh, a few record shops, shops that I, I go to, you know, basically to buy stuff. So I thought, okay, maybe they might find me familiar because I'm their customer, you know. So I'll go there and say, oh, you know, I have this cassette. Would you like to uh, sell it in your shop? Then they took a look at it. Then they were like, what is this? Is this like pirated and all that, right? They said, no, 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 it's my original. So I got rejected, you know. But I managed to get a scoop bookstore uh, to sell it. I mean, they were like an indie bookstore, Funan Center. I think second floor. And then one floor up was uh, Dada Records. Peter Quack, the owner, was quite supportive. He said, okay, okay, you can put your cassettes here on uh, consignment. Uh. You know, if they sell, then they'll, they'll give me the money. So basically, it was these two shops that sold our uh, cassette. 1988 also saw another landmark gig, the 10 Years of Punk concert, organised by Chris. This took place at the Rediffusion Auditorium. It's like a hall without any seats. Imagine a school hall, so there's a stage at the end. Basically, three bands played, Opposition Party, The Odd Fellows, and Mortal Flower. And the crowd was crazy, like, yeah, really unruly crowd, you know. Very difficult crowd. A lot of punks, basically, you know. I remember when I was performing, there was this guy just playing with my microphone. It was so irritating. And then uh, I think Chris also had uh, played some games with them, musical chairs and all that, and it was crazy, you know. The place was a riot. After that, it was like, the whole place was so messed up. If you go to the toilet, I think they were like, uh, the mirrors were smashed. I think there were blood on the floor. So after the gig, we all have to help to clean up the place. La. <laughs> Actually, I have a photo of Chris with a broom and, and dustpan. Cleaning up, yeah, I, I have it somewhere, I need to find a photo. They may have been rowdy, but these audiences were showing up. That meant a lot for a music scene that had not received much support for original English language local music for almost two decades. By and large, however, there were still very few places for these up-and-coming bands to perform. 
Joe had started to organise gigs himself by then, and he remembers how resistant most venues were to hiring local musicians who wanted to play their own songs. If you ask me uh, what is the most painful rejection, right? the most painful rejection uh, is not one rejection, uh, but it's death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> Each time you go to a club, to a pub, say, hey, look, you know, can my band play you know, uh, our original song or so whatever, and then the club owner or the pub owner or whoever say, hey, cannot, I must play Hotel California <laughs> or Led Zeppelin or the flavour of the month or... or the top hits of the UK and US is um, constant rejection. Constant, 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 constant. And we keep pushing. It's not just me, but everybody in the scene, we kept pushing, pushing, pushing. When Substation opened uh, in 1990, September, right, that was a big turning point. The late Kuo Pao Kun was very, very, very open. We went to see him. We asked him, hey, can we have gigs here? And he said, sure. Uh, but I remember telling him, I said, look, um, the music won't be pretty. We're having like hardcore, we're going to have metal, punk and uh, trash. And he said, sure, Substation is a place whereby it's open for any form of expression. A substation really opened up the space and it kickstart the, the possibilities for a lot of people to go and like express themselves and say, well, we have a platform now and have a connection with uh, fans or uh, people who, who are interested in, in discovering and knowing more about music. It was a time of new beginnings. Joe formed a band called The Padres in the early 1990s, and he describes what it was like to perform and attend gigs at the brand new substation at the start of this promising decade. One of the things about the substation is that the way that um, it is built, right, Somehow, it, is, it faces itself in a particular direction of anger whereby it's just very hot. And that makes an uh, unpleasant kind of like space to be in, but it's great for rock and roll because you go there, you're hot and sweaty. If you're not hot and sweaty, you are not at a rock and roll gig. I swear, there was one time there were 500 people there. I swear, okay? Not wanting to buy a $5 ticket, you know, assholes. So they were climbing over, over the walls and it was very tight, it was very packed, it was very sweaty. Um, it was anything goes. In terms of, let's say, presentation on stage, right? There's no YouTube you can watch and you can mimic. The first few years of all these, like, original English uh, language gigs, right? You'll see a lot of people just standing around, okay, what do I do? Arms akimbo, it's like, what do I do now? Is it okay to shake my leg? <laughs> you see a lot of that, no? but along the way, they start to find their own feet, and, and not just the audience, but the bands also. The bands are discovering themselves on stage and discovering how to connect with the audience and likewise, vice versa. So it's very, very interesting to look at that. The substation wasn't just for hardcore music. Singer-songwriter Art Fazil got his start in the English language scene there when he took part in a folk music event. I didn't really get a chance to perform English songs until an event called Acoustic Vibes. That was probably 1992 at this substation. It was organised by uh, the late Steve Hogan and Dennis Tessenson, this wonderful couple who wanted to create a certain kind of scene, a vibe, uh, 
which is probably derived from the, the early 70s folk club music scene which was happening in Singapore at that time. I think the new paper carried a story about that. Those who are interested to come and just drop in and put your name down and perform. So I thought, aha, you know, your Eureka moment, like, aha, this is a chance. Life is full of magic, you know. So when I was heading to that event, I kind of felt that this is there's a, it's a moment here. There's, a, there's something happening here. I perform with, with the Malay crowd very often by then. But I've not really performed my English songs to the public before. Yeah, I think I did two songs. I think I was feeding off the energy of the crowd, which was like in the 90s because we didn't have Esplanade. There was a lot of stuff that in the 90s that were very much initiated by individuals or groups of musicians. It was like a bit of an underground thing going on, you know? His performance got him some very favourable press coverage. And that soon led to a recording contract with Pony Canyon, which by then was headed in Singapore by Jimmy Wee. For most of the indie bands in the alternative scene, however, access to resources of a major label was still a very distant dream. Instead, they sought out affordable jamming studios, which had started to appear by the early 1990s. The most iconic one was TNT, run by a man everyone called Aboy. His name is KK Wong. He's affectionately known as Aboy, although he's 60 plus years old now. Ha ha ha. But we still call him Aboy. He already had a jamming studio, but he was looking at all the kids that's coming in. You know, saying, wow, all these kids, huh? they got heart. You know? I think uh, maybe uh, I can invest in a four-track. Uh. In his jamming studio, there's two rooms. So he broke down one wall, and one room is the band room, and the other room, right, he partitioned up into a, the recording space uh, and uh, set up console there. And then he made it very affordable. So a lot of the kids just started flooding going to our boy's studio. It's a very down-to-earth, punk, alternative space. TNT started being a place where everybody started to hang out, gravitate towards, because uh, anytime you go there, you definitely meet somebody that you like or don't like. After he started the studio, right, he completed the equation because can record, can put out a cassette, album, and then the ecosystem sort of is complete. In some ways, though, the local music scene of this time was less diverse than it had been in the 1960s, when women had been prominent as performers and in some cases as music label executives. In the 1990s, women who joined the fray did not always find it a welcoming environment. Jeanette Chittick was a member of the all-girl punk band Psychosonic back then, and she recalled her time at TNT in a 2015 interview for So Happy, 50 Years of Singapore Rock. You know, being all-girl, even jamming at TNT, people will be like, hey, all girls are... And then, like, through that little window at the door at TNT jamming studio, people will be like, can they, can they tune their guitars? What, what are they doing? You know, it's very nerve-wracking. But yeah, so that's how we started. <laughs> Elsewhere in Singapore, other areas of the arts were bubbling with new life as well. There were indications that music was starting to cross-fertilise with these disciplines in ways that almost recalled the way local movies had showcased homegrown music in the 1960s. The indie film scene was taking shape, and director Eric Koo also made music videos for local bands, used their music in his movie soundtracks, and even cast Joe in the title role of his film Meepok Man. Joe also occasionally collaborated with performance artists like Tang Da Wu. In 1991, 
the Oddfellows negotiated a deal with BMG Singapore that saw the record label manufacturing, distributing and marketing their album Teenage Hit. Its lead single, So Happy, hit number one on Singapore radio. The success of this song was a major milestone for original local English language music. It was a very exciting time because after the album came out, we played so many shows, you know. We, we did like 40 over shows in three months. We played Hard Rock Cafe, we played Europa, we played NUS, a lot of venues. It was cool, it was a very, very fun period, <laughs> yeah. In 1993, the Padres released Radio Station which became a sort of anthem for the underground music movement. In 1994, another local band, Humback Oak, released their debut album, Painstained Morning, under Pony Canyon. This won several accolades at the Perfect Ten Music Awards. Things were on the rise, Humback Oak, uh, Concave Scream, and then there was a few other, other bands that were doing things. There was the awareness about local music was coming up, then together with the Padres, blah, blah, blah. It was like, there's almost this sense of feeling that you cannot stand back the tide of this. This finally where Singapore English language original music has finally, we are moving from square one to square two to square three. As local acceptance for Made in Singapore songs grew, music makers here could also see that a bigger landscape might be within their reach as well. The 1990s was the age of globalization. The internet had arrived for the masses in 1994, and as information began to flow faster across borders, the world was starting to look a lot smaller and much more accessible. In 1995, Art decided to leave for London, and he would remain abroad for the next 15 years. Pony Cannon offered me to do a second English album, and I said, not yet, because I'm, I want to go to London first. An artist in the right frame of mind would go like, yeah, let's do the second album and, you know, build a career. But I, I think I was very curious about life in general, you know. I have this philosophy or rather this saying, which I carry with me at that time was, God created the whole world for you. Don't get stuck in one island for the rest of your life. Over in Japan, Dick was exploring a whole new world as well. Asia was changing. 
And the Japanese public started to notice what was going on in Asia. And then I turn up presenting a very modern vision of what was going on in Southeast Asia. And my music had all those elements in it. It's multiracial, like, like what Singapore is. Like. And so I found myself in Japan recording album after album with Asian themes. My whole songwriting style changed. I started to use more Asian pop songs and, you know, like sort of like mashups and all that. This is something that I was just doing because that's what I felt I was expected to do. Then, in 1997, the Asian financial crisis struck. Its impact rippled across the music industry. At the time, the Oddfellas was halfway through recording an album under Pony Canyon. Because of the financial crisis, the label had to close its office in Singapore. So, basically the master tapes were lost. La. I went to the studio to try and find it, but at that time it was all tape reels. Then they are not really labelled properly. So when I was in the studio, there were so many lying around and I couldn't really find it. You know, so I, ah, yeah, never mind, just forget about it, right? Yeah. It was a bit disappointing because of, you know, we spent so many hours, hours recording, and then it's all, like, gone. So, <laughs> a bit disheartened. I mean, we can do it on our own, you know, but it's like, oh, i got to start from scratch again. So, yeah, so we didn't really get around to doing it. By 99... Everybody pulled back, and uh, it was really bad. Uh. Even when I spoke to a boy uh, at that time, uh, he was telling me, if I remember correctly, right, the number of people coming to record at his studio right, dropped significantly. So it's across the board everywhere. When you do not have the output, right, uh, the number of releases, things start to slow down, uh, and gigs also slow down. You know? But in other ways, this low point of the decade also seeded some new glimmers in Singapore music. 1997 was the year Dick created the song Home, which was not composed for National Day, but nonetheless became a National Day theme song the following year. He wrote it while he was living in Hong Kong and feeling homesick, and just a little while before he would move back to Singapore. Home has since become a beloved song familiar to all Singaporeans. And that's what makes this song very special for Dick. People are still singing Home, you know, 21 years later. That means they relate to it from a Singaporean level. And I wrote that song in 1997, almost 20 over years since I started with Fried Rice Paradise. And it took me that long to be confident enough in myself to come up with a song like that, that expressed my Singaporeanness without a tabla or an erhu. You know what I mean? Finally, I came to what being Singaporean meant to me and expressed it in the song. And I find that people can relate to that. They use that song to express their feeling for Singapore. And I think that made me feel, okay, I think I found it. 1997 was also the year Leonard left Canada and came home. The indie scene then may have been at a crossroads, but he still felt inspired by the young musicians he met. So you could have, say, at the substation, uh, an event that started at 12 noon. It would go up to maybe about 9 to 10 p.m. at night, and you had like 13 bands playing, you know? And then there would be punk rock bands, there would be indie bands, there would be metal bands, uh, ska bands, and it was amazing because, you know, 
we had all these bands of different genres playing in the same gig with people who were there from early afternoon to late night watching all these bands, you know? So they were not divided. They would watch a metal band, they would watch an indie band. It seemed like everyone was very, very united at that time because they all wanted to achieve the same goal to make this scene even more popular. And they were all friends. That, that, was, the, that was the best part because, you know, you could listen to indie, but then no one's going to judge you if you're not listening to metal. I realized then that that was a space that I could make a difference to work with all these young kids, uh, work with all these bands and try to produce music that was of a higher standard so that they won't remain underground all the time. One of the bands that got started around this time was Electrico. Here's band member Desmond Goh and Dave Tan sharing how the 1990s scene influenced them. A lot of things were happening. You have a lot of gigs in like the substation, the old World Trade Center, amphitheater, and with the help of big old magazine, uh, releasing a lot of compilation of all these Singaporean bands. So I think to us, it's kind of like serve as a, a lot of inspiration to like say, hey, so many people are you know putting out stuff, writing our own music, and things like that. I think that we can do it. Just to add to what Desmond was saying, I mean, in the nineties. There was a very powerful energy in the scene, you know. Back then, the scene was a lot more of a kind of tangible, visceral scene where you are actually involved physically. So it was a case of really going down to discover bands, meeting people, attending gigs, and being part of a, an actual physical community that kind of fed off each other. So it, it was a very, very dynamic and, and fun time to actually be in a band Electrical went on a hiatus in the late 1990s and got back together in 2003. By then, the scene had evolved. During the early 2000s, I would say there's a big change. And I think what changed is the live scene. These gigs during the 2000s are more properly produced. Like, for example, Babies. It started in uh, 2002. That's when the Vietnamese music people decided to bring this festival into Espanyol and everything. That is definitely exciting times. Three or four days of live music for free by the bay and everything. It was like a big explosion of like different type of genre coming together and stuff. I remember us coming back in 2003. We, we know that, oh, definitely we must play babies. That's true. I, I do remember us actually aiming to as a, as a goal to try to make it on the babies bill. That would have been our first festival, you know. Because prior to that, it's just really just little pop-up gigs here and there, which we had been doing for quite a number of years before that. You know, like bar shows or a small substation gig, or maybe play at this poly or that poly, uh, but never a music festival that was kind of organised specifically to bring bands together in the festival setting, you know. And so it was exciting to us to be able to do that. Babies is an annual free alternative indie music festival and it was co-curated by local label Wake Me Up Music and Esplanade in its early years. Since 2008, it has been fully programmed by Esplanade. From its inception, this festival has been an important showcase for local and regional acts. In fact, Electrico's William Lim says the band pushed themselves to finish their very first album as part of their journey towards playing Bay Beats. The first Bay Beats caught our attention to inspired to do the album and do everything to try to get get where we are. Well, the first album was a collection of like songs that we wrote 
in the nineties and new stuff with, that we kind of like uh knock it out during I mean when we came back again in two thousand three, we went to Nana to help us. And it was a total learning curve for us, right? Because we'd never done something like that before. But it kind of humbled us uh, into realizing that there's there's so many nuances in terms of crafting a sound and putting it together and songwriting and, and everything, you know. They named this album So Much More Inside. And one of its biggest hits was Runaway, yet another beloved Singapore song that was written outside Singapore. Leonard shares more about what it was like to produce this song. So Runaway was an old song actually written by Dave when he was studying in Oregon. When I first heard the song, I thought like, wow, you know, this is a really, really good song, you know, with the catchy hook at the start. You know, it was the, the thing that would catch people's attention uh, immediately. And then the way Dave sings, uh, truly, truly, it's another day, you know, it's the first line itself is, is very strong also. And I remember when we were producing that song, we didn't cut it up or anything. Like William played the drums and then we tried to just take, take the take that he took. Uh, and then, you know, Dave singing. Um, all the parts were recorded, even though they were multi-track. They were not like the whole band playing at the same time. But we tried to retain the essence of the band, the meaning of the song, and to give it a new life. Because it was an old song, so we tried to uh, record it and make it sound like it came from that generation. The popular music at that time was probably Coldplay, Keen, you know, it was the British invasion. And Dave was very, very heavily influenced by Oasis at that time. We tried to make the song sound a bit British also, in terms of the instrumentation, like Daniel Sassoon was in the band at that time. So Daniel Sassoon has a, a large collection of guitars, expensive guitars. And then, you know, we would borrow his guitars and then everyone would play them uh, just to get the, the, the tones that we like. They were one of the first few bands to come out and release stuff that was very different from everything that was being released in Singapore. So it caught people's attention and it caught the media's attention. So that's why Electrico's first album was the one I think that was groundbreaking in terms of production, in terms of the sound, and also in terms of the songwriting. You had so many bands form at that time also who wanted to sound like Electrical. So they, you know, they were buying the same stuff that Dan Sassoon had. And yeah, I think that was the start of the whole new revolution in music. Leonard's observation about Electrical's influence actually gets at something quite profound about their place in Singapore music history. After decades of being shaped by external influences, a critical mass of budding musicians here were finally starting to see a homegrown act as role models, not just in terms of their musical tastes or their persistence in creating an ecosystem for local music. They actually wanted to emulate the sound of a Singapore band. Of course, Singapore pop is still tied to the trends of many different places, and an awareness of music created by Singaporean predecessors and peers is by no means a given. But getting to know our own music is a key step to evolving the Singapore sound. 
and that goes for all generations of music makers. Last year, I started writing songs and it's been really cathartic for me because I was writing songs like I was writing them in 1973. Writing songs just because I was feeling blue or wondering about how COVID is going to take. And then, you know, just not writing songs that are government commissioned. I decided to work with a band, a young band, so that it would include their take on my music. And so I decided to find individual musicians who were very good musicians. I went on Instagram and I just found them on Instagram. I found them separately and put them together. They know nothing about our music history. I'm teaching them. But they love music, they love playing, and they're all 25 years old. And they're playing my music, and we're going to be performing it. It's so much fun, and I learned so much from them. And they're hopefully learning from me. So I think this kind of exchange is important. This kind of collaboration and just to keep evolving, you know. I think that's what uh, musicians need to do. Technology can definitely help to connect. It also pervades all aspects of music making these days. And Leonard believes that it must be used with care and never at the expense of what makes music special. I feel that music has to come from the soul. You know, it's little nuances uh, that you leave in your song, right? It's what gives it character. It's what psychoacoustically will remain in your head and make you feel a certain way when you listen to the song. If you listen to, to like some of the best singers in the world, if you just listen to the vocal track Naked, right? You can spot actually mistakes in the tuning. Maybe they, they sang a bit flat. But when you put it in the song, it sounds perfect. You know, so music, it's about that. It's about having all these imperfections that makes it perfect. If you create everything that's perfect, then it becomes an imperfect thing. There are many releases in Singapore that I feel could have been better or if they left it the way it was performed instead of using too much autotune or too much programming. One of the things that the computer cannot replicate is the soul. And that is what I actually look for when I'm listening to a band or listening to music, is trying to identify the sound, trying to see what message they are trying to send out through the music, and also like the soul behind the song, the songwriting. To put it another way, making compelling music requires an exploration and understanding of who you are, imperfections and mistakes included. And that's the ongoing rite of passage for Singapore pop. We kicked off our first episode by asking the question, what is Singapore pop? Before we wrap up the series in our next episode, here's an answer to this question from Electrico's Desmond. I think Singapore pop is very much musicians over here trying to tell their stories in their own way, be it whatever genre or be it whatever style that they have, they want to showcase. I think that's good enough. Not trying to emulate whatever other people, other people from overseas are doing, but just being true to yourself, being a Singaporean and sharing your story through music. I think that's Singapore pop. Stay tuned for our last episode, where new generations of Singaporean music makers share their reflection on what it takes to tell their stories now. Pop Law, Stories of Singapore Pop, is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre, in celebration of its 20th anniversary. Look out for more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To listen to more of the songs mentioned in this podcast, 
check out our music playlist on esplanade.com/offstage. slash